I'm going to pray. We're going to look at the Word together. We've got uh, the final installment in Ecclesiastes this morning. So if you've got a Bible, go to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. We're going to start at verse 7 of chapter 11, Ecclesiastes chapter 11 and verse 7. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to offer you one as a gift. They're on the back table at our welcome desk. You can grab one this morning on your way out. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 7. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you that you are the God who speaks to us through your word. And God, we rejoice in the fact that you delight in the gathering of your people to sit humbly under your word because this is when your voice is heard. And so we pray this morning that we would hear you speak that Holy Spirit, you would transform our hearts, make us more like Jesus, even as we face some of the dark realities of life. We ask that you would speak to us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' strong name. And those who agreed said, amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 7. I'm just going to read to the end of this verse, but we will go all the way through chapter 12 as well. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in your days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart, put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Just last month, Suncorp Bank released the results of a recent study that they'd performed called The Cost of Looking Good, The Financial Cost of Looking Good. What they found was that in the four weeks prior to their survey, Australians had spent eight billion dollars on looking good. And I was like, hang on a sec. I did the research, I put it in my notes, and then I was practicing, I was like, no, I I think I got that wrong. I think that must have been the annual amount, not the monthly. Anyway, the annual amount, $100 billion that we spend on looking good. They've broken it down like this, $612 million on cosmetic enhancements like Botox and teeth whitening and tattoos and all that kind of stuff. $673 $673 million on cosmetics, $617 million on skincare services, and a whopping $729 million on skincare products in four weeks, in one month. Now, and dudes, in case you're thinking, my goodness, look at all this money that the girls are spending on all this stuff, right? Well, um, half of the men surveyed admitted to buying a skincare product in the last four weeks, so you're not off the hook. Those of you guys who went out and bought that little, you know, moisturizer to get rid of the crow's feet, and the, we know what happens. The cosmetic surgery industry is booming. Of that $612 million that was spent on cosmetic enhancements, $350 million is spent on injections like Botox and fillers. $350 million on Botox. 8000 breast augmentation surgeries a year, and 30,000 liposuction surgeries every year. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that those are bad things. Like, don't, don't hear me saying I'm anti-makeup or anything like that. I'm just simply telling you what the stats are. This is how it is. Some of those surgeries are actually life-transforming surgeries for accident victims or cancer patients in recovery. 
but the vast majority of those surgeries are surgeries of convenience. I wonder what those stats say about us as a culture. What do they tell us about who we are, what we desire, the things that we value? You know, those statistics tell us that as a culture, we are desperately trying to look young and beautiful. That's what it's saying. We are desperately trying to look young and we're trying to slow down the aging process as much as we possibly can. Young people in our society are trying to avoid the responsibility that comes with being old and old people in our society are desperately trying to look young. We worship youth and young people in our culture. But the problem is we live ignoring a gigantic elephant in the room. And that elephant is that you will all get old and die. You will all get old and die. Despite all of the money that we spend on trying to look beautiful and young, you will one day be a corpse in a coffin. Death is a real problem for us. You know, I remember just a few weeks ago on one of our days off, uh, we were at a cafe and Tash was sitting opposite me. She kind of leant in and she looked at me and then just burst out laughing. And I was like, what? What are you laughing at? She's like, you've got a great eyebrow hair. <laughs> and I was really self-conscious and I got home. I'm like, I'm just going to the bathroom. Went to the bathroom. I was like, it's true. I've got a great eyebrow hair. Tweezers, pluck it out. Why? Because that's a reminder that I'm close approaching 40 years of age. I'm getting old. It's a problem for us. We don't like it, do we? Getting old. We don't like death. It's a real problem for us. Death. That problem that first emerged on the scene in Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve chose to believe the lie that they knew wiser than God. They accepted the lie of the accuser, they ate of the fruit. And the curse that came upon all of humanity because of that was that we will now die. What happened? God kicked them out of the Garden of Eden and he put two cherubim protecting the Garden of Eden with flashing swords to prevent them from accessing the tree of life because if they ate of it, they would live forever. And so for the very first moment in Genesis chapter 3, humanity experiences death. And it's been a problem for us ever since. Death is an intrusive, intrusive diversion from God's original intent for us as humanity. See, we were meant to live forever. That's why in Ecclesiastes chapter three, the preacher says that God has placed eternity on the hearts. That is a scar that remains in our hearts from Genesis chapter three because we know that we were meant to live forever. Death robs us of that. It robs us of everything in the end. And so the preacher has one last word for us from Ecclesiastes 11 and 12. And his word is this. Life is vanity. Ecclesiastes has been a bit of a slap in the face, hasn't it? Been pretty brutally honest with us. In fact, in chapter 12, verse 11, the writer says that these words are like goads. 
These words are like goads. A goad is like a cattle prod, a long stick with a little sharp hook on the end that they were just used to whack the sheep to motivate them to move along a bit. He's saying, the words of the preacher are like a cattle prod. And I've been, we've been whacked with this cattle prod for eight weeks. We've been schooled on life by this preacher. Vanity, 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 vanity. And some of you are thinking, thank goodness this is over. Final week of Ecclesiastes. Let's move on to some good news. But today... The preacher with his cheery but brutal honesty is going to tell us one last time that life is vanity. He's going to say that youth is vanity, that old age is vanity, and in the end, everything is vanity. So you ready? Strap your seatbelts on. Here we go. Being young is vain. Verse 7. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. You know, we love the sun. You know how I know that we love the sun? You just hashtag search sunrise or sunset in Instagram and you'll get thousands and hundreds of thousands of returns on sunrises and sunsets. We love them and the preacher's not opposed to that. In fact, he loves the sunset. He loves the sunrise. He says, light is sweet. It's good for the, sun, for the eyes to see the sun. He loves it. It's kind of his way of saying, it's good to be alive. It's good to be alive. This is kind of like, maybe, the um, how's the serenity moment of Ecclesiastes. It's like, ah, oh, man, it's good to be alive. Chapters 11, uh, 9 to 11, the preacher has been building this case that we are to live in the now, in the moment. We're not to live in the past. We're not to live in the future. We're to live now, appreciating the gifts that God has given us now, not trying to manipulate them for personal gain, but enjoying them as gifts from God. That's been what he's trying to do in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 to 11, and Damo helpfully communicated that last week. And so he says, if someone is blessed with long life, then let them enjoy every single day of it, verse 8. Let them enjoy all of them. Enjoy life. You know, I think some are under the false impression that being a Christian is really about being boring and joyless. Like God's intent for your life is that you would be miserable and unhappy. And all of the rules that God gives us are really just ways, God's way of spoiling our fun. I think some people live under that illusion of what God is like. But let me ask you this question. Why did God create you with taste buds? What? Like, why did God give you taste buds and then create all of these different flavors for you to enjoy? Like, why did God do that? God could have just created one flavor, like Doritos chips. That could have been the one flavor that God created, and that's the flavor that you eat every single meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, Doritos chips. Like, why did God give you taste buds? Why did God create such a wonderful array of flavors? Like, why did God create color? Like, all of the different colors that the eyes can see. Because God wants you to enjoy his creation. Remember when God was creating at the end of every day, he stood back and he said, it's good, it's good, it's good. What God has made is good and he wants us to enjoy it. He wants us to enjoy it. But the sad reality is that many Christians, many Christians believe that if you have joy 
which is of personal gain, then you've spoiled a virtue. Like we believe somehow that if we serve Jesus with joy, we've spoiled the fact of serving because there's personal gain if I enjoy doing it. Like if I enjoy preaching, I've spoiled the moment of preaching because there's personal gain in it for me. And we have this warped view of what it looks like to worship God. Just so you know, God is not honored by that kind of thinking. We tend to do spiritually what the monastic movement did physically, and that was spiritually we deny any sense of spiritual joy in life. And the preacher says that doesn't honor God. He wants you to enjoy life, to have joy in it. But, but remember, says the preacher, that if you live long enough, if you are blessed with long days, then you will see much and you will also witness dark days. Live long enough and your joy will be accompanied with funerals and goodbyes and heartbreaks and loss and pain. Enjoy life, but don't live naively. Don't pretend. See, Ecclesiastes never lets us pretend about life. He says, enjoy it. Enjoy every moment that God gives you as a gift, but know this, that joy and sorrow both come, that there will be sweet and bitter in life. Enjoy it. Enjoy it while you can, he says. Because verse 8, all that is to come is vanity. Everything that lies ahead, every moment of your life to come will pass. It's vanity. So enjoy what you can now. And you might think, well, surely the preacher's next point is going to be, well, that is depressing. So let's just wallow in self-pity and take drugs and drown our sorrows and just ignore all. That's not his answer. In fact, the preacher goes the opposite way. Verse 9, this is what he says. Rejoice, O man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart. Put away all pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Enjoy life. Pursue your dreams. Follow your heart. Remove pain and bitterness and vexation. Make the most of now. That's what he's saying. You know, young people are in a unique position in life. Responsibilities are low. Time is flexible. Your body bounces back. And the preacher's saying, enjoy it. Enjoy it while you can. And yet, this is not just enjoy life and pursue it without God. Because again, the preacher tempers his words here in verse 9. He says, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Pursue pleasure. Pursue joy. But know that God is judge. You see, joy in the end is not just reckless indulgence. Joy in the end, true joy, is enjoying the good gifts that God gives us in the way that God intended them to be enjoyed. Pursue joy. But pursue it knowing that God is judge, that he will hold us accountable for our actions. And then in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, 
Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure. Remember your creator now, now in the days of your youth, remember him. I remember having a conversation with a good buddy of mine who uh, didn't believe in Jesus. And uh, I said to him, you know, what's stopping you from becoming a Christian? Like, why not just become a Christian now? He says, I don't need God now. I don't need God now because I don't want to miss out on all the fun. I'll find God later when I'm old and I, and I, and I need him. And the preacher is saying, no, no, it doesn't work like that. Remember God now. Remember God now in the days of your youth because the thing about saying no to God is that you get good at it. Now is the time to lay the foundation of enjoying life in the context that God gives us. Remember God now. Because here's the deal, in verse 10, he says, youth and the dawn of life are vanity. It won't last. You will not stay young, fit, and healthy forever. You're going to get old, and wrinkles will come, and strength will fade. And this is what the preacher, uh, the preacher of um, Proverbs says in Proverbs 31, beauty is fleeting. It's the same word. It's vanity. It's a mist. You see, the problem comes when we take the good things that God gives us and we turn those good things into ultimate things and we seek to find our ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction in them. The preacher says we were never meant to find ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment in being young because it's going to pass. It's going to fade. You're going to get old. You're going to die. And so being young is vanity. It's fleeting. It's temporary. And you know what? So is being old. He turns his attention to the elderly in chapter 12. It says this, Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few. And those who look through the windows are dimmed and the, ha- and the doors of the street are shut when the sound of grinding is low. And one rises at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of the song are brought low. They are afraid of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. You know, there's some debate over whether or not these verses are to be understood literally or figuratively and metaphorically. If you read it literally, it probably reads a description of a funeral procession or maybe even of the end of time. But I think there's probably a mix of both figurative and metaphoric in here. But I predominantly think this is a picture, a poem of getting old and of dying. And it's kind of fitting because Ecclesiastes begins in poetry in chapter 1 and then ends in poetry here at the end of chapter 12. Death is described like this storm that comes, that rolls in. And the storm comes and and that aging process is like the storm that comes. There's a problem that arises and then as soon as that problem disappears on the horizon are more clouds. Another day, another specialist, another problem, another doctor. And they just seem to compound themselves. The keepers of the house there could describe 
someone's arms as they tremble to lift things up, arms that were once strong have now faded away in muscular atrophy. The strong men that are bent could be describing legs that are now bent over or could literally be the strong man of the house who is now old and hunched over in his old age. The grinders that are few are describing teeth that have fallen out and don't exist anymore. This is well before the age of dental hygiene and dentures. It's just your teeth fall out and they're gone. Those who look through the windows are dim is a description of eye loss. The doors of the street are shut at the sound of grinding, which is low, describes hearing loss. They're afraid of heights. The elderly have a fear of falling over. There's a terrors in the way. There is a fear of being taken advantage of. There's a description there of the, the almond tree that blossoms. When the almond tree blossomed, it blossomed with this crown of white petals. It's a description of hair that turns gray or white. In fact, my, my last pastor, Ray, used to say, I like to refer to it as platinum blonde. But that's what happens. You get old, the color drains out of your hair, it goes white, it goes gray. The grasshopper dragging itself along is a description of the decreased mobility that comes with old age. Like my grandpa came to Judah's third birthday yesterday. He's 100 years old and he came in a wheelchair and it takes him a long time to just get from the house to the car. There's no spring in his step anymore. The grasshopper drags itself along. And finally, desire fails. As you get old, sexual desire fails. The desire for appetite fails. Sometimes, sadly, even the desire to live fades and disappears. It's a very vivid and poetic way of describing life as it winds down, as you get old. The next step is the grave. Death again here described metaphorically in chapter 12, verse 6. It says, before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Eventually, we all end up where we began. From dust you are, and to dust you shall return. The preacher says you're going to get old, and you're going to die. And this is vanity. So enjoy life. Enjoy your youth before this process happens. There's a very famous poem called Death Lib by Steve Turner, who's a, a British uh, poet and journalist. And he says this in his poem about death. The liberating thing about death is its fairness to women, its acceptance of blacks, it's special consideration for the sick. And I like the way that children aren't excluded, homosexuals are welcomed, the militants aren't banned, con men can't con it, thieves can't nick it, bullies can't scare it, magicians can't trick it, boxers can't punch it, nor critics dismiss it. Don't knows can't not know it, the lazy can't miss it, governments can't ban it, or the army defuse it, judges can't jail it, lawyers can't sue it, capitalists can't bribe it, socialists can't share it, terrorists can't jump it, the third world aren't spared, scientists can't quell it, nor can they disprove it, doctors can't cure it, surgeons can't move it, Einstein can't harm it, Guevara can't free it, the thing about dead is that we're all going to be it. Death has no favorites. Every single one of us will die. You know, Stephen Covey, in his very famous book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, says of the second habit, he says, second habit of highly effective people is to begin with the end in mind. 
And so if you want to figure out what you want to do with your life, think about what you want to achieve with life. Like think of the end and then reverse engineer your life to end up at that point. It's good advice. I've done it myself. I've got a little couple of pages in my journal where I've tried to think about the end and reverse engineer my life of all of this vision stuff that I want to achieve and get to. But here is a bit of a problem, I think, with that exercise, is that I think we all go to the wrong end. You see, the end that we go to is a material end, an end of material prosperity, or the end of a, of a nice family home, or the end of a comfortable retirement, or the end of being surrounded with family and friends. The problem with that is we end up putting our head in the sand when it comes to the real end, and the real end is death. Death is the end. And the preacher is forcing us to get there. He's forcing us to get to that point of realizing that you really, what you really need to do is reverse engineer your life around that end. Think about how to live your days knowing that death is your future that your life will wind down, that you will get old, and that you will die. The conclusion of the preacher is the very same sentence that he started with as he opened the book of Ecclesiastes in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2. And here in, verse 12, in chapter 12, verse 8, it's the same phrase, word for word. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is Vanity. James 4.14, your life is a mist that appears for a while and then it vanishes. Our kids love playing with bubbles. They love bubbles. We've got bubble everything. We've got bubble machines. We've got bubble guns. We've got bubble wands. We've got little bubble spoons. Like We've got bubbles everything. And if the kids are kind of getting a bit crazy, it's like, who wants to play with bubbles? And they're instantly happy. And we go outside and we do bubbles. And here's the thing with bubbles. It's such a short lifespan. This little bubble comes out of the machine, it goes up, it travels across the balcony, and then it pops. It's gone. The preacher of Ecclesiastes is saying, I want you to know that that's a picture of your life. It's vanity, it's fleeting, it's temporary, it doesn't last. And then he gets to his conclusion after all his musings on life, after all of this experimentation of life without God, life with his Bible closed, experimenting with pleasure and wealth and joy and wisdom and folly and all of these things, this is the preacher's conclusion on life. Have a look at verse 13. Drum roll, you ready? This is his, this is his epiphany moment. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Fear God, follow God. That sounds satisfying to you? You're like, are you serious? Like all of that, all of Ecclesiastes, and we just get to those two points, fear God, follow God, is that it? Can be highly unsatisfying for us. But you know, as we reflect on the vanity of life, that it is fleeting and temporary and like a mist. Many who observe the same facts that the preacher gets to 
end up at a very different point. Right? They either end up at depression, because what's the point? Or they end up at this frantic, unholy hedonism that just tries to clutch at meaning and significance in every event of life. But not the preacher. He's got a different perspective because he includes God in his picture. And he says, the point, the duty of man, the reason that we were created is to worship God, to fear him, to hold him in awe, to follow him, to worship him. And then he concludes on this note of judgment. You think, why? Why does he do that? Why doesn't he finish the book on a positive note? Like, send us out. Yeah, come on. He finishes with judgment. Such a depressing book, and it ends on such a depressing note. But here's the deal. The preacher finishes on judgment for, for a reason. And the reason is, he wants to remind us that everything that we have in our life has significance, purpose, and meaning. You see, if there's no God... There's no judgment. And if there's no judgment, no one's going to hold you accountable for your actions. And if no one holds you accountable for your actions, then they're neither right nor wrong, good nor bad. And if they're neither right nor wrong, good nor bad, then they have no ultimate meaning and purpose and significance. They're just things. But when you put God in the picture and you worship a God who is a judge, who will hold you accountable for your actions, that means that all of the things that we do are good or bad, right or wrong. And that brings significance to everything that we do. The preacher of Ecclesiastes is saying, you've got to get it. Life is so short. It's so fleeting. If you close your Bible and pretend that God is not there, everything is meaningless. But once you put God in the picture, everything has significance and meaning and purpose. You know, one of the things that has come out for me as we've been reading through this book of Ecclesiastes is that I think... We've become afraid to ask the questions that the preacher asks in this book. I don't know why. Maybe we're afraid because we feel all too acutely the problem that the preacher raises in our own hearts. We're like, oh, gee, I feel that. Maybe I have placed a little bit too much of my significance and purpose and meaning in this thing. And so we're afraid to ask it because we feel it all too much. Or maybe we're afraid to ask it because it's just uncomfortable. Like, hasn't it been uncomfortable letting the preacher just prod us, prod us with a cattle prod saying, it's vanity, it's vanity, it's vanity, it's vanity, it's vanity. I mean, that's uncomfortable. And so we don't want to do that with people. But I love what Tim Chaddock says in his book, Better. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to read it. He says this. He says, the church needs to reclaim its role as holy provocateur. Love that phrase. The church needs to reclaim its role as holy provocateur, that we would provoke people to think, that we would ask those good, deep, searching questions that stir our souls, that we would be good at asking, does this really satisfy you? Does this bring you the meaning that you really are looking for? Are you sure that this is what happens after you die? You see, if we don't do that process, then what we're actually doing is just offering Jesus as one of the options in the smorgasbord of life. Until we have that holy provocateur, until we stir the soul and force people to ask deep questions, we're just offering Jesus as an option. But what we need to be doing is offering Jesus as the solution to the deepest existential angst that our souls feel. What is the point? What is 
the point of all of this. If we're good missionaries to this city, and, and this is something that I personally want to grow in, I want our church to grow in. If we're going to be good missionaries to this city, and that's what we believe we are, a family of missionaries, then we need to be good at asking the questions, at deconstructing our culture's worldview, asking those questions and then offering Jesus as the only solution found in the gospel. So we need to be good at doing. If there is no eternity, then it's pointless. Let me ask you this question, a question that may disrupt your soul. Are you afraid of death? Are you afraid of dying? Like, I don't mean, are you afraid of dying painfully? Because I think we all have a quota of fear about the way we're going to go. I mean, are you afraid of the end, of death? And you might ask, well, how do I know? How do I know if I'm afraid of dying? Because I don't necessarily feel like I'm afraid. Maybe some of the ways we know that we're afraid of dying is that we're frantically trying to cling to significance and meaning and purpose and all of the good things of life. We're seeking to hang our purpose on those things that are just fleeting and, and we're, we're anxious about it, trying to grab them and hold them. Maybe we're afraid of death because we're afraid of missing out. And if you've ever, ever come across that phrase that says, the only people afraid of death are those who live with regrets. The only people who are afraid of death is those who live with regrets. That's rubbish. Rubbish. You know, the risk taker and the risk avoider can just as equally both be driven by fear. The fear of what? The fear of missing out. The fear of wasting your life. It's the same fear that drives people in different directions. One, it drives you to YOLO. You know that modern philosophy of life? You only live once, make the most of it. The other, philosophy, the other reaction drives you the other way. God, protect, don't take risks because you only live once. Are you afraid of dying? Yeah, I think we fear death in the end because it robs us of everything. It truly does. If there is no eternity, if there is no God, if there is no life after death, if there is no judge, then everything about your life is meaningless. You're an and I. Someone said that death is the intermission between being born and, sorry, life is the intermission between being born and dying. That's it. But if there is an eternity, if there is a God, if there is a judge, then that changes absolutely everything about our life. When you get to the end, whenever that is for you, then what? What happens? The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we're not guessing what happens when we get to the end. Because Jesus has told us, Jesus is the one who has died on the cross dealing with that problem that first came up in Genesis chapter 3, dealing with the problem, the consequence of our sin was death. And Jesus dies on the cross to deal with that problem. And then he rises again to new life to conquer death and promise that those who have faith in him will have life everlasting. That's the good news of the gospel. 
And only the Christian worldview offers hope like that. I can't think of any other worldview that offers me hope of life everlasting. It's the good news of the gospel. Let me finish with this story. It's a story of a friend of mine who I grew up going to church with. She was uh, maybe a year or two ahead of me in school. Her name was Kirsty, and at 21 years of age, she was diagnosed with uh, leukemia and um, got to a point where the doctors said to her that everything that they had tried, they'd done, they couldn't do anything more, and her days were numbered. It was just a matter of time before she died. And I remember she would come to our Bible study group with her oxygen tank and her mask on, and she would sit there and breathe heavily and contribute little things here and there. And a few months later, she passed away, 21 years of age. I remember being at the funeral. I was working at the church that we attended at the time, and I remember her family getting up to share, and her mum got up to do what no mum should have to do and share the obituary of her daughter. And she shared a lot about Kirsty's life, and she got to the end and described the moments where she was sitting in the hospital with her heart on her daughter's chest and literally feeling the moment when it stopped beating. Death had robbed them of their daughter, their sister. It was heartbreaking. There's not a dry eye in the whole church. And then her brother gets up. And I'll never forget this. It's, I was just reflecting on how profoundly this impacted me. Because he got up literally, as soon as his mum finished the eulogy, he got up with his Bible and he put it down on the pulpit and he said, I'm going to read a verse from 1 Corinthians 15. And I don't think I've ever heard anyone read the scriptures with more conviction than Mike on that day. And these are the words that he read from 1 Corinthians 15. He said, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Like, who says that at a funeral? Your sister is dead in a coffin next to you. Who says that? Like, who stands at a funeral and stares death in the face and says, you lose without the hope of eternal life, of the resurrection, of life everlasting? Friends, only the gospel brings that kind of hope. Only Jesus. Because Jesus has died and risen again, everything has purpose and meaning and significance for us. Everything. Paul gets that because in the very next verse, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the Lord, in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It's not in vain. Serving Jesus now is not in vain. Because of the resurrection, everything has significance, purpose, and meaning. Only in the gospel, the promise of the resurrection, of life eternal, do we find the meaning that we are so yearning and longing for the good news of the gospel. What death has robbed us of, Jesus graciously offers back to us. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together in a second, but 
In 1 Corinthians 11:26, Paul says this of the Lord's Supper. He says, for as often as you drink this bread, oh, sorry, eat this bread and drink this cup, you do what? You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This meal that we're about to partake in, as you take the bread and you dip it into the grape juice and eat it, that participation, Paul says, is a proclamation of the death of Jesus, that his death in your place covers your sin, giving you the hope of eternal life. So friends, as we respond this morning in praise and worship of our good God, as we come forward to these two stations on my left and right, dip the bread in the grape juice, eat it, remembering that that very act is a proclamation that Jesus died for your sin and rose again to give you new life. And let's celebrate this morning in the gospel. I'm going to invite the brand up, band up, lead us in prayer, and we're going to respond in worship of our great God. Friends, if you're a guest with us this morning and you don't particularly feel comfortable coming forward, then please feel free to remain in your seats. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus who died in our place. We thank you that he has defeated death. We thank you that his resurrection guarantees our new life. Rejoice in the hope, the meaning, the purpose that that brings to us this morning. Lord, we thank you for this series in Ecclesiastes. As hard as it has been to hear the words of the preacher, as he has prodded us time and time again about the vanity of our life, God, would you turn our eyes from idols back to Jesus, remind us of the cross, that we would worship him with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength. We pray this this morning in his strong name and those who agreed said, Amen. Amen.